and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 88, Success by Any Other Name. Last time, each side had drawn blood. U-73 had sunk the carrier Eagle on August 11th, and the destroyer Malcolm had literally run over the Italian sub Dagobah. Obviously, this was not a fair exchange, a carrier for a sub, but the skirmishing was over. It was time for the main duel to begin. Meanwhile, the Italian sub Uarsic, which had damaged to what degree no one seems to know a carrier, and it was not recorded in the official British records of war, was still trailing the convoy. However, Albacores, flying to the rear of the ships, kept the sub at a safe distance. As for U-73, during the afternoon of August 11th, she was still lying low, avoiding the British destroyers, who were hoping to scuttle the vessel that had taken out the Eagle. Another Italian sub, the Bryn, had fortunately spotted a destroyer about 2,000 meters before itself was spotted. The sub backed off, not wanting to take on the one British vessel. But there were still more to come that day. At 2.20 p.m., radar told of a high-flying, fast-moving enemy aircraft approaching the convoy. But because of its height and speed, it was deemed not a threat. Indeed, it was probably a reconnaissance flight. German records do record a Ju-88 flying over at the time to take pictures. Still, the two battleships raised their batteries and fired off salvos, knowing they couldn't hit the aircraft, but hoped to scare it away. Likewise, the RAF patrols already in the air knew they could not catch up to the Ju-88 because of its location and height, but kept a wary eye out. The sailors below could hear the enemy plane, but could not see it. It was enough to rattle their already tried nerves. And there would be other high-flying German reconnaissance that day, of which Admiral Seifert recorded, The speed and height of the Ju-88s made the fleet fighter's task a hopeless one. It will be a happy day when the fleet is equipped with modern fighter aircraft. Just after this first reconnaissance was detected, Seifert received a signal from Flag Officer North Atlantic that they had intercepted a wireless message that spoke of the Germans organizing an air attack for that evening. It was now time to put into use some of the maneuvers the convoy had been practicing for days. The leading wing destroyers were ordered to move further away from the convoy to 6,000 yards to increase the initial defensive shield. Meanwhile, some of the Hunt-class destroyers were ordered to move in closer to the four columns of ships. This would allow them to provide, when the attack came, an umbrella of six four-inch shells that would hopefully alter the favorite attack of the Germans, of flying straight down the line of ships, thus increasing their chances of each bullet hitting something besides water. The two carriers immediately turned into the wind to launch as many fighters as they could to join those already aloft. These planes already on deck took off and climbed to 20,000 feet. The aircraft made for a position north of the convoy to put themselves in between mainland Europe, where the enemy would be coming from, and their charges. Unfortunately, at this moment, several destroyers were out of position, refueling. They were told to break off and to return to their positions. 
Out of curiosity, one of Seifert's staff asked how many destroyers had managed to refuel. This information could end up deciding tactics later on. The answer was 13, a most unlucky number. But now was not the time for superstition. It was a time to fight. Just as La Foray, one of the refueling vessels, got back into position, the other ships around her, the destroyers first and then the heavier vessels, started firing off their batteries. Sure enough, diving from 8,000 feet on the port side were 30 JU-88s attempting to make a shallow bomb run. Yet below them, just above the waves, were six Heinkel 111 torpedo bombers. So who would the gunners go for, the attackers from above or below? The answer for them was obvious. The more real threat, the Heinkels. The barrage that soon came at them was such that their approach was mostly stymied. A few got off torpedoes, but as they had released wide or too soon, their intended targets managed to dodge the lethal fish. The same was almost true for the 88s. They had dealt with barrages before, but nothing like this. So they too pulled up, but continued to look for an opening. As the JUs circled around, the destroyers followed them, continuing to put up flak. But this was mostly just a nuisance for the bombers. Before too long, the German wing leader, followed by another, decided to go after the victorious. He would come from astern for his attack. However, the carrier spotted this, so turned itself, so that the approaching planes were well lit by the sunlight. This allowed the escort's guns to follow the path of the attackers. As the bombers approached, the results of hits could be seen on both of them. Some of the gunners said they crashed into the sea. Either way, two bombs were dropped, and though they landed uncomfortably close, no damage was done. Clearly, taking out the destroyers or carriers at this point was a no-go. So some of the 88s went after the oil tankers in Force R that afternoon. Yet, with the augmented firepower of the rigs, the closest the Germans can get was to drop a bomb in between a tanker and a corvette. One of the bombers then went after the jaunty, as it was returning from refueling. But the ship's powerful guns were too much. The bomber was pushed away. While the escorts were putting thousands of black puffballs in the air every minute, the destroyer Quinton, out front in the position A, picked up a contact and left its position to hunt down the sub. Though she attacked three times, no underwater explosions resulted. Still, the would-be attacker was scared away. Quinton rejoined the convoy that night at 9.40 p.m. The only success the Axis had that day though they would claim to have damaged a carrier, one cruiser, and one merchantman, was when a JU bomber dropped a bomb near the cruiser Manchester. The ship itself was not seriously damaged. However, bomb fragments destroyed the ship's only walrus amphibious float plane, though another ship held another walrus in its hangar. As for the British, three JU-88s were supposedly downed that August 11th, yet only one was confirmed. The day had gone reasonably well, besides the loss of the Eagle, but the men, military and civilian, had shown themselves brave that day. More importantly, they now had an idea of what would come later, and they believed 
they could handle it. Still, there was a downside to shooting at planes for the last few hours. As the British fighters returned, hoping next time to break up the enemy formations before they reached the convoys, the gunners, still with adrenaline running through them, opened up on their own planes. The pilots screamed into the radios, using most unfriendly words. Yet as the planes circled the ships to show their markings, the gunners followed them and continued to fire. The carriers, knowing their aircraft were running low on fuel, decided to break away from the main body of ships, enough so that the gunners would not fire. But then the carriers' own guns opened up on the landing aircraft. It took the shouting of the officers to get the men to stop. Only then did the aircraft land, mostly on empty tanks. As darkness came, everyone rested, as best they could knowing there would be more of the same tomorrow, only more intense. This day had only been a probe by the enemy. The attacking waves would get bigger. Meanwhile, the ships sailed on, coming ever closer to Malta and the Narrows. Yet the escorts of Pedestal were not the only British forces engaging on August 11th. It had been decided to strike the Italian airfields on Sardinia and Sicily, hoping there would then be fewer planes coming at the convoy the next day. Yet only two of the four liberators sent from Middle East Command found their target at Deji Momamu and raided the area. The other two did not. More besides, nine bow fighters, a multi-purpose aircraft that proved proficient at night raids of 248 Squadron, were dispatched that evening to attack the airfields at Elmas and again at Dechi Momamu. At Elmas, the three Italian subs there had been warned, so submerged before the bowfighters got there. Also, what aircraft were at Elmas were already in the air waiting. Still, the bombs dropped before the British made good their escape, took out one Savoia sub. The other subs nearby, along with six more, were on their way to put themselves in between Malta and the convoy. But at Deci Momanu, it was a different story. As the facilities there had not received a warning, the bows, as they were called, had the skies to themselves. Within minutes, one Savoia, a CA-164, along with 11 more aircraft, were now useless. But the bows of this more successful raid had bigger news to bring back to Seifert. Passing over at Cagliari, they spotted two light cruisers and two destroyers that belonged to Admiral Dazara's 7th Cruiser Squadron. The ships were just leaving harbor and turning east, obviously planning on blocking the intended path of the merchant ships, once the majority of the escorts turned for home. Replacing the bows on patrol, which had spotted the cruisers and destroyers, were the Wellingtons of Orange, or Owatch, their job was to keep an eye on the Italians. Orange made contact at 11.55 p.m. on August 11th at 2,500 feet. Below them were four Italian cruisers and eight destroyers. These ships by themselves could possibly penetrate the escort shield around the convoys, but that wasn't their plan. They were waiting for Force Z, compromising a large segment of the escorts, to turn around and head for home. Only then 
would they attack, as their chances of success would be much greater. Obviously, the British could not let this stand, so the Wellingtons were ordered to bomb the Italian force before heading back to the carriers. They did as ordered at 1.30 a.m. in the early mornings of August 12th, but little damage was done. Yet British offensive moves were not limited to naval and air actions. Back on the night of August 9th, the submarine Una, commanded by Lieutenant Martin, slipped out of Malta's harbor and made for the eastern coast of Sicily. There, at Cantania, five men, under the command of Captain Duncan, would disembark and make for the airfield. Though it was heavily guarded, as it was closer to the coast than some of the others, it was deemed a sure bet. Hopefully the element of surprise would put things over the top. After getting into position and hiding out, that night of August 11th, the men closed in on the airfield. Yet, as it was decided to blow the communication lines between Catania and Syracuse, the first explosion, going off before planned, alerted the airfield's defenses. The men were captured that night and did not meet up with the sub Una when it came back for them on the nights of the 12th or the 14th. A similar operation was planned and executed against a German airstrip on Crete, but the guarding force there was considerably larger and more alert than expected. The would-be raiders got away, but did no significant damage. If Pedestal was going to get through, it would be up to the escorts surrounding it and the planes of the carriers. As for Admiral Dazara, it's not truly known if he was told that his ships had been spotted, but seemingly he was not. Because at 10.30, the night of August 11th, he left Cagliari with two cruisers and two destroyers as escort. His plan was to meet up with other forces just north of Sicily's eastern tip. Waiting for him there were three heavy cruisers, one light cruiser, and several destroyers. This squadron of three 8-inch cruisers, three 6-inch cruisers, and 11 destroyers would engage Force X and the merchantmen on or about the night of August 12th. With air cover from the mainland expecting to assist, starting on the morning of the 13th, the idea was to fully deflect pedestal by means of sinking this latest attempt by the British to aid Malta, if all went according to plan. During the night of August 11th, the ships of Pedestal were left alone, but that changed as the sun began to rise. As the lead escorts were just 50 miles off Tunisia's northern coast and just below Sardinia, Pedestal would receive the Axis attention throughout the day. Yet the bombers coming from Sicily and Sardinia would not have fighter escort until about noon. Whether this was a mistake or overconfidence, is not known. The day of August 12th was cloudless, the skies clear, the sea calm, visibility perfect. And as the Germans had reconnaissance patrols just after first light, no one in Rome was surprised when a report came back at 6.20 a.m. reporting 50 ships being spotted. Soon after, the carrier's radar picked up incoming bombers. To be sure, the two carriers already had each two planes up, conducting sweeps, starting at 6.30 a.m. 
Soon after, 12 fighters were also in the air, which would be the norm throughout the day. However, should bombers approach, each carrier had the remainder of its fighters at instant readiness. And yet, bad omens started off for the British first thing. Their fighters, not being the latest models, could not catch the Axis reconnaissance aircraft, much less some of the bombers sure to be above the ships that day. Still, the pilots did their best. But the threat that day was not just from above. Also early that morning, reports were coming in of wolf packs to the northwest and northeast of the convoy's current position. To combat this, or any other threat on or below the sea, the destroyer screen was ordered to pull in closer to the convoy. But what is not known is, if the escorts knew that the URSIC, U-205, and U-73 were still trailing the enemy ships, occasionally breaking the surface to report the enemy's current position. Rome would have no trouble that day of August 12th in directing their aircraft towards the enemy. The first attack, 19 Ju-88 bombers, came roaring onto the carrier screens at 9.07 a.m. In response, 16 fighters, Sea Hurricanes, Fulmars, and Martlets, were sent to intercept the approaching bombers. Other aircraft were also sent aloft, but maintained a perimeter around the convoy. Right away, the older model fighters found that their speed and firepower were not up to the task of eliminating the German bombers. Still, the young men flew in between the enemy aircraft as best they could. Before too long, the excited pilots claimed to have shot down four bombers. Whether this was true or not didn't matter at the moment. The majority of the bombers had gotten through. As some of the bombers had turned around before attacking the ships, it's probably true that they had suffered enough damage to necessitate dropping their payload and to head for home. The remainder, however, reached the fleet and came in, attacking low with the sun at their backs. Every escort within range, and probably a few who weren't, opened fire. Within minutes, kill claims were coming in that, if true, would have wiped out the assaulting force several times over. Yet one Ju-88 was definitely seen crashing into the water. Either way, this opening round was soon over. The result? Six Ju-88s never made it home. No British ships were sunk or heavily damaged. A good start. The Italians knew that the Germans would be going in early, though a large raid was planned for the midday. Still, hoping to take advantage of a post-action perceived lull, one Italian medium bomber, a Savoia Marchetti SM-79, which was cruising at a very high altitude, came down after the German bombers had left. Yet by now, the British were on to this game and had themselves placed two Fulmars, as high as they could go, up sun from a likely attack point. The Italian dove down. Within seconds, the two Fulmars were also diving down, on an intercept course. Within minutes, the two attackers from 884 Squadron watched as the enemy bomber crashed into the water, just a half mile from the North African coast. The same incident played out shortly thereafter, around 9.40 a.m., as another Savoia was cruising high above, waiting for his opportunity. 
However, the two Fulmars could not catch the anxious bomber, who had decided to head for home instead of attacking. Giving chase, the fighters got the worst of what exchanges there were, eventually heading home with damaged aircraft. Still, there was one less bomber attack than could have been. Around that same time, the La Forêt, slightly ahead of the fleet, picked up a contact. She immediately began a depth charge attack. The sub, in response, dove deeply, per standard procedure. Soon the Fury joined in on the attack, sending its charges below as well. The sub in question was the Bryn. The hunt went on for some time, but the Bryn was able to escape. She stayed down deep as the convoy passed overhead. The Bryn's luck, it must be said, was being stretched considerably. As for the destroyers wanting a kill, they had done their job of preventing another attack. Yet that was hardly satisfying. As stated, the Axis had planned for a large assault at midday. As such, reconnaissance planes were kept near the convoy, occasionally using their speed to slip in between the slower fighters to get a better look. But then the escorts would fire off their main armaments. The reconnaissance plane, or snooper as it was called, retreated back to a safe distance and height. But not forgetting the threat from below, Sunderlands were kept in the air to snoop out any threatening subs. Some of the aircraft were from the remaining carriers, others were from the rock, Gibraltar. It was one of the latter that detected the Italian sub, Giada, captained by Cavallina, that morning about 70 miles northwest of Algiers. The Sunderland's first attack at 9.34 a.m. with two depth charges violently shook the sub, damaging its control instruments. The Giada submerged, but the captain knew his ship could not stay under for long, risking the possibility of death at the hands of the British aircraft versus certain death below. The Giada resurfaced and made best speed for Valencia the closest port. Repairs were made on the way. However, the same Sunderland, TK-7C, spotted the limping vessel at 1.45 p.m. TK-7C came on an attack run, dropping a four-stick pattern, which again shook the already damaged vessel. Cavallina knew the next pass would kill them all if they didn't defend themselves. So ordering his men to man the gun, the Italians waited for the next pass. The British pilots radioed their position and situation. They left off with, their second run should finish off the sub. Yet, call it fate or luck, the pathetic gun of the Italian sub scored hit after hit as the plane came closer. Soon, the pilot was dead, the plane out of control. Zooming over the sub, the plane crashed into the water, exploding seconds later. The Giada limped into Valencia for repairs, and though she had taken out a British plane and its crew, the convoy had one less sub to worry about. Later that morning, at 11.35 a.m., the German sub U-205 was detected, but after being attacked by two destroyers, was lucky to get away. Another near success for the escorts, yet the large attack of the day was yet to happen. The Italians, based at Sardinia, were preparing to show the British and the world their air force was still 
the best in the world. Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 89, Being the Enemy of Time. Last time, the day of August 12th started out with a few hairy moments for the convoy and its escorts, but the first real focused attack was approaching, in which the Italians would be throwing a multi-layered assault at the ship's pedestal. The Italian's objective was to distract the escorts, cause the merchantmen to scatter for cover, then come in with their heavy torpedo bombers and sink as many of both as possible. At noon, several large formations of bombers were detected. They were split into groups, and each group had its own large group of fighters for protection. Without delay, the carriers released their fighters to first engage with the enemy fighters in order to get to the bombers. The Italians were hoping their bombers would get in close enough to force the civilian ships to run for cover, knowing the escorts would have to split up to defend them and that their overall effectiveness would be reduced. And this time, the attackers had a surprise for the oncoming ships. Just ahead of the leading British escorts, 10 S-84 Italian bombers dropped their payload of two Motobomba FFs each. These FFs were new on the scene, hence the British would have no plan against them. Called circling mines, the FFs would be activated once they hit the water, sink to three meters, and then go in a circle with a 15-kilometer radius for the next 12 hours. They might not hit the first ships coming their way, but they would be coming around once the merchantmen came past. With the Italian bombers threatening from on high and the circling mines threatening from water level, soon CR-42 fighter bombers were coming in to attack the convoy at mid-level. Honestly, these aircraft were already obsolete. They are 200-pound bombs, not much of a challenge for the destroyers. But if they could draw the attention of the destroyer's screen to themselves, then perhaps the bombers above or the circling mines below could achieve some level of success. The first bomber attack, consisting of the 10S-84 bombers already mentioned, came at 12.15, covered by 14 Maquis MC-202 fighters, easily on par, if not better than, the Sea Hurricanes. As the convoy was directly south of Sardinia, this attack run attempted to hit the convoy's left flank. But as the British fighters and the Maquis mixed it up, the Italian bombers came under the attack of the ship's guns below. Given the firepower of pedestal, no one on a British ship was surprised when the Italians seemed to panic and drop their bombs prematurely and then turn north for home. No ships were damaged. As for the bombers, two S-84s were wiped from the sky. The remaining eight suffered enough damage as to need several days of repair. Normally about this time, certainly if the attack had been coordinated by the Germans, the second bomber raid would have begun, just as the apex of the first battle had passed. 
That way the defenders would be unable to focus on the coming attack. But the Italians were not as proficient. So there was a lull in between the first and second attacks. Still, as the Italians of the first attack had dropped their bombs, the ships below were forced to react. Pedestal, in its entirety, made an emergency 45-degree turn to port, and then back again to starboard to avoid the Italians' leavings. The practice the captains and crews had been put through had just delivered its first dividend. As the relative center position of the convoy changed with the altered course, the now equally rehearsed pilots from the carriers did their job against the low-flying CR-42 Falcons, attempting their own bomb run. As the eight Falcons came ever closer, the martlets of Indomitable's 806 Squadron charged directly into their path and broke up the attack run. Very quickly, five of the Falcons crashed into the water. The last three, perhaps expected to turn and climb for safety, did not flinch from their approach. They at least dropped their bombs before leaving, but left no damage in their wake. As Pedestal was still in the midst of its left and then right turns, the second Italian attack came. It was supposed to have come sooner, but inexplicably did not. Now coming at the racing ships were two bomber groups of 33 Savoia Marchetti Sparrow torpedo bombers and then another 10 S-84s. These 43 bombers were being protected by 26 RE-2001 fighters, a respectable interceptor. Again, the carrier's fighters approached the coming two groups, managing to push back the S-84s. However, the Sparrows tolerated the fighters' bullets and kept approaching the ships. But the destroyer's screen threw so much metal into the air By the time the Sparrow Bombers began their final approach, they had already been broken up into groups of five planes each, now coming at the convoy again on their port side. But as the bombers were now flying low, relatively slow moving, the gunners before them aimed with glee. Some of the Italians reacted or overreacted to this new concentrated fire and dropped their bombs still 8,000 yards away and turned for home. Yet they were in the minority. Most of the sparrows withstood the defensive wall and flew right over the heart of the convoy, though perhaps a little too fast. Bombs and torpedoes were dropped. The attackers turned for home. But again, the ships of pedestal were not harmed. As the Italians left, they were now less one sparrow, two S-84 bombers, and one RE fighter the rest assuredly flying away in some state of damage. However, the day was not over, nor were the attacks from the north. Now, as the last of the Italians were leaving, the Germans came. 37 Junker 88s from Sicily cut across the convoy's front to attempt entry from the starboard, or right side. One full mar of 809 Squadron, based on Victorious, just happened to be the closest British fighter to the German formation, so turned to attack. He quickly took shots at two of the bombers, of which one jettisoned its load and then turned away, the other stayed within the protection of the larger group. 
The Fulmar tried to give chase to the now lone 88, but its own firepower soon changed the mind of the pilot. In all, eight British planes were sent up to engage the JU-88s. The Fulmar just mentioned, along with three others of its kind, from 809 Squadron from Victorious, and four Sea Hurricanes from Indomitable's 885 Squadron. By now, the German bombers were, more by design than desperation, separated into several groups of four or twelve. The four Fulmars went after one of the larger groups. Within minutes, four of the bombers, probably needing to make a getaway due to damage, dropped their bombs and turned away. The rest stayed on course. The Sea Hurricanes tried to get at the other bomber groups, but they did not have the ability to climb as high as the bombers. Their only course was to wait for the bombers to jettison their load, turn for home, and then attempt to chase them down. During the confusion, 12 JU-88s made their way through the destroyer screen at 1.18 p.m. Now that they were inside at 3,000 feet, they began their dive attacks. Within seconds, both battleships survived near misses, and several escorts were damaged by nearby blasts. However, the cargo ship Du Calion, a former French vessel, would not be so lucky. Located at the front of the port wing column, one German bomber made for her, dropping four bombs. The first three were, like the others, near misses, but the last was on target, landing on the number six derrick used for lifting supplies onto the ship, and made its way to the number five hold. Immediately after the explosion, the ship slowed down. The vessels behind her made their way around the struggling vessel. Some of the crew, believing the ship was a complete loss, readied some of the lifeboats. Word got to Vice Admiral Seifert, who ordered the destroyer Brahman to stay with the damaged ship. Captain Brown of the Duke Calion told Captain Baines of the Brahman that the number one hold was flooding. Number two was already flooded. However, he wanted the chance to get her back under control. Permission was given, and the ship's crew took the next 20 minutes to effect repairs. Then the engines came back to life. The ship got underway, eventually making it up to eight knots. As this speed was not enough to keep up with the convoy, Brahman was told to stay with the cargo ship and use the Tunisian narrows of the inshore route. Perhaps the access focus would stay on the main convoy just to the north of the slower ship but it was not to be. Later that day, the Luftwaffe discovered the two lone ships. The merchant ship was further damaged and considered a loss. The crew was taken aboard the Brahman, their ship scuttled by the destroyer. As the Germans were leaving, British land-based planes came to help hunt down the retreating Junkers. Lieutenant Patterson, focused on chasing a fleeing bomber, was himself pounced on from above by two fighters. His plane took serious damage and barely made it back to base. Lieutenant Johnston, the CO of 806 Squadron, based on the Indomitable, was not so lucky. His plane was equally damaged, but upon landing, his arrestor hook malfunctioned. His plane continued across the landing deck and fell over the side, sinking instantly. He was never seen again. 
Soon, the Italians were coming in with their third attack, and again had a surprise for the British convoy. Coming at the ship's pedestal were two special combat units. At the center of one was an ordinary SM-79 bomber, surrounded by five G-50 fighters, acting as escort. But if the British could have seen inside the SM-79, they would have been shocked to see that there was no pilot or crew aboard. In fact, the plane was being radio-controlled by another plane just behind it. One more thing, the pilotless bomber was stuffed to overflowing with explosives. If it did make it to its intended target, one of the carriers, the destruction would be complete. Fortunately for the British, a radio malfunction took place before the convoy was reached, so the plane simply kept flying over. Hours later, it crash-landed along the slopes of Mount Clenchila in Algeria. The Italians had a team race to the spot to make sure the French did not learn of its uniqueness. Fortunately, but not unexpectedly, the plane and its secret were obliterated. The second combat unit coming at the convoy also had a surprise. It's worth remembering, though we have covered the impressive German and British planes, not to mention their brave pilots, the Italian Air Force was seen as the premier force for a time. Two RE-2001s were flying flat out towards the carriers. But instead of having the normal anti-personnel fragmentation bombs, they held armor-piercing bombs, specially made for being dropped from a low height. The goal was to speed past a carrier, drop the bombs, just as the British planes were either landing or ready to take off. If the timing could be just right, the bombs would cause much damage among the flight crews, the naval staff, and any parked planes nearby. The carrier might be more or less undamaged, but many of its planes would be ruined, thus an almost useless carrier. At 1.45 p.m., the fleet's fighters started landing on the carriers. Up above were supposedly three sea hurricanes waiting their turn. But suddenly, two of the assumed British aircraft dove down, gained speed, and flew right over Victorious's flight deck, just three feet above the flat steel. The Italians had used the confusion of combat and their speed their planes had been modified to be faster than any other Italian plane to get in with the British aircraft coming home. The Italians dropped their bombs, which bounced and skidded over the flight deck as the attackers nosed up and climbed for safety. One of the bombs, they only weighed 100 pounds, a clear flaw, smashed itself against the armored deck, knocking over a trolley. Though the bomb was a dud, the trolley and everything on it now became a weapon due to its velocity. Four officers and two men were killed. Two more were injured. The second bomb survived the landing, but was moving too fast. It skidded across the deck and only then exploded, as intended, but harming no one and seriously damaging nothing. By now, the convoy was getting past Sardinia, it would soon be the turn of those Axis planes based on Sicily to have their chance. But those attacks were not expected for another hour or two. 
Before then, the Axis submarines would have a go. Not to put too fine a point on it, the previous air attacks that day were comparable to plain checkers. You moved your pieces rather quickly and drew blood, or you didn't. As for the Axis subs versus the British destroyers, that was a game of chess. Pieces were moved around, strategies developed more slowly, and not everything was as it appeared. For the next two hours, submarines were sighted, as did contacts were picked up. Vice Admiral Seifert ordered that the 19th Destroyer Flotilla drop death charges every 10 minutes between 2 and 7 p.m. The Tartar spotted a sub, dashed to its position, and made sure the potential attacker left by dropping a pattern of charges. The Zetlin also spotted a sub and gave chase. Within minutes, the destroyer was far out of position. With little chance of getting the sub, Seifert yelled over the radio for it to return to position. At 4.16 p.m., the HMS Pathfinder had a ASDIC contact and noticed that the sub was maneuvering to place itself where it could attack either one of the battleships or one of the nearby merchantmen. Surging ahead at 20 knots, it released two five-charge patterns, hoping to throw off the sub's aim. Yet, luck was with the Pathfinder, as secondary explosions were detected. The severely damaged Italian sub, Cobalto, surfaced, but obviously out of control. After a few more attacks, the Ethereal moved in and rammed the sub, now assumed to be doomed, a boat crew was sent to enter the sub to grab as many documents as possible. However, the Cobalto then sank for the last time. Still, the boat crew managed to rescue the Cobalto's captain, three of the officers, and 38 men. Yet now that the Ethereal was out of position and outside the destroyer screen, she was set upon by one Ju-88 and four Italian CR-42 fighter bombers. The Ethereal's captain quickly got up to 20 knots to return to the protective cover of the escorts. But now the Italian prisoners did not appreciate very much that their own comrades were shooting and dropping bombs at them. Their day had already been bad enough. As the planes approached, Captain Maitland MacGill Crinchton, which is why I have been avoiding saying his name so far, expertly dodged the falling explosives and returned to his station. Though the British had crashed a sub and taken prisoners, the others in the area did not let that deter them. Next came the Emo, led by Captain Franco. Just after 4 p.m., he had spotted through his periscope 29 ships, 16 freighters, a carrier, and numerous escorts. His decision which to attack was determined by his orders. He would go after the carrier. Submerging, the Emo took 20 minutes to get into position to attack the carrier, but by then the convoy had made another turn. Now there was a cruiser and several destroyers between the Emo and the target carrier. Switching objectives, Franco decided to sink the cruiser. At 4.33 p.m., four bow torpedoes were sent out from 2,000 meters away. Minutes later, three explosions were heard. Surely the cruiser had to be sinking. As such, it was time for the Emo to make good its escape. But that's when the Italians got into trouble. 
What Franco didn't know was that the three explosions were not the torpedoes hitting the cruiser, but rather them detonating in open water, probably as they were shaken by going through the ship's wake. Also, the Tartar had spotted the torpedoes' tracks and now gave chase, going to where the tracks had started and dropped death charges. The Emo was shaken as it dove, but there was no serious damage. Yet the destroyer lookout behind the Tartar spotted Franco's periscope just as it disappeared, so it then speeded up to assist in the attack. For the next hour, the Emo stayed deep and moved slowly as it exited the area. Having sunk a cruiser, supposedly, the crew had done its job. Yet Franco was confused as he continued to pick up depth charge attacks, which was fine with him. If the enemy wanted to waste their resources, so be it. But what the captain did not know, a body of knowledge that was getting larger by the second, was that the more recent attacks were aimed at the Avario, another Italian sub. The Avario had come upon the convoy at 5.08 p.m. As the sub's hydrophones were not working, the sub surfaced and the captain spied several British vessels, two destroyers, two freighters, and a battleship through his periscope, but no carriers. This went against his orders, but the captain decided to sink the battleship. Such was his confidence in his crew. Yet, as the water was calm that day, there was no background noise for the sub to use to sneak up on the battleship. Still, the element of surprise was his, and the sub-commander would use it. Slowly moving towards the battleship, the captain was surprised when two of the destroyers broke formation and started coming directly at him. Yet, they could not have detected him, he surmised. He was still some 10,000 meters away. But the destroyers kept coming. The captain held his course. By the time the destroyers were just 3,000 meters away, the captain knew that, however it had happened, his sub had been detected. Giving the order to dive, the sub dove for safety. But at 5.30, the destroyers started their attack, shaking the Avario. The captain ordered the sub to go down another 100 meters. As the sub only had its periscope to spot the enemy, the Avario stayed down deep for the rest of the day not servicing until 10.25 that night. Another enemy of the convoy had been thwarted. That afternoon, the same scenario played out against the sub Dandolo. At 4.35, it had crept upon the convoy, but the escorts were taking advantage of the smooth water, detecting anything that came close. For the next two hours, the closest destroyers and the Dandolo played the game of cat and mouse, but the sub never got a clear shot. Throughout the day, as the subs were kept away and the Axis bombers dispersed, Seifert was working against a deadline. At the end of the day, August 12th, he and Force Z would turn around and leave the 13 freighters at 7.15 p.m. Pedestal would now only be protected by the remaining destroyers and what aircraft there were from Malta. Yet throughout the afternoon, reports were coming in of a large enemy air formation about 30 miles ahead. It seemed as if the fighters and bombers from Sicily were gathering to make one last massive attack before the convoy had to run the minefield 
only after the cruiser squadrons from Sicily had their chance to sink the merchants without the protection of Force Z. But by now, with the attacks and repetitive use, the carriers were having trouble fixing, refueling, and sending off their fighters. The men below on the carriers worked feverishly, but still only managed to get 22 aircraft up to fly ahead and attempt to disperse the building enemy formation before it could attack them. As for the British, their plan was simply based on one of Shakespeare's lines. If it were done when tis done, then twere well, it were done quickly. Okay, so here we are with another Harry's giveaway. Again, this is just my way of thanking every, uh, all the members who listen and who help contribute to the show. I really do appreciate it. So with me is my lovely, lovely assistant. What's your name? Sophie. Sophie, to help me. So what we're going to do, just to, And Mommy. And Mommy. Um, that's her official name. Just to build the drama is we're going to draw three names and then draw the final winner. So Sophie, would you like to draw a name? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Don't look. There you go. Just pick one. Okay, there we go. Okay, so I am going to butcher this name like I've never butchered. Um, Netzebrak Zedwa. Zedwa. Um, sorry about that, but I hope you win just because I, I made a mess of your name. All right, so two more. Give me, don't look, don't look. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Alex Atterbury, who put in his email that he has been so close to the last couple of contests. So good luck, Alex. Now one more. Okay, Okay, that one. All right. Joe Ward. All right, so we got our three finalists. So let's put those aside. We got these. So now Sophie is going to turn away. I'm going to shuffle these up. And she's going to pick one. Pick one. All right. Hold on, you missed one. There you go. Okay. Okay. Okay, they're they're getting bored. This one. All right. So congratulations to... No, you can't say that. To Joe... (laughs) To Joe Ward. Congratulations. Yay! Yay. All right. Joe Ward, so send me your email and uh, to wwiipodcast at gmail.com. I will get your address and send this out to you. Again, thank you for everybody who's um, been listening, contributing, um, and participating in the contest. And just to show you uh, how appreciative I am, we're going to have another Harry's giveaway. So again, send me emails and put into uh, the subject line something like, Ray, I'd better win this time or else. And uh, we'll have another drawing contest in a month or two that it should give you enough time to listen to this and to enter. So thank you for everybody. Congratulations, Joe. And we'll be back next month with two more episodes. You want to say goodbye? Goodbye.